Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 34, what uh, will probably turn out to be our final session because we're covering the last chapter of the book of Revelation this evening. So let's begin by bowing our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this time, for this study, and for the opportunity uh, to delve into this book and to unlock some of its mysteries. So continue now to bless us with your wisdom, your guidance, and a determination to be better disciples for you and for the sake of your kingdom. For it is in the most holy name of your Son that we pray. Amen. All right. Now, for those of you that are here in person with me, along with your notes, you have four different commentaries on the Scripture that we covered from last, last weekend um, because there were a lot of questions, and they centered on this. Why does the New Jerusalem have a wall if there aren't any enemies left to defend it from? Why does it need gates along similar lines? And why, is it, why are those gates guarded? Remember, every gate had angels around it. So the question is, uh, why, if the enemy has been defeated, why all these defensive structures around the new city? And um, in your packets, I provided a commentary uh, from the Nelson Study Bible, the, its New King James Version, uh, the commentary on Scripture from Albert Barnes, Jonathan Edwards, who is the, uh, the great revival Puritan from the American uh, first, well, the, the Great Awakening era, and Matthew Henry's commentary on Scripture. And I'll let you read those at your leisure. The one that I found particularly helpful was the one from uh, Nelson's study Bible. Jonathan Edwards, as verbose as he is in every other place, doesn't say a lot in this one. Um, but I'll read really quickly from Earl Radmacher's um, commentary in the Nelson study Bible. And this is what he has looking at uh, the top of chapter 21. The city seems to be laid out as a cube since its length, breadth, and height are equal. The cube was an ancient symbol of perfection. The most holy place in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the temple were cubic in design. The, symmetry, the symmetrical measurements of the city are so vast 12,000 furlongs, about 1,400 miles, and the wall is so thick, uh, 144 cubits, or over 200 feet. It's interesting that he attributes that second measurement not as the wall of the city's height, but as its thickness. That they almost surpass the imagination. The imagery indicates that the city is the dwelling place of God's presence, just as the tabernacle and the temple had been. And then if you skip down to his commentary on verse 18, as thick as the walls of the new Jerusalem are, about 200 feet, 
They are as transparent as crystalline jasper. The vast city itself, especially the streets, are also like clear glass, even though they are made of pure gold. The overall effect is that of an incredibly beautiful and transparent city symbolizing the never-ending glory and purity. Uh, verse 23, down a little bit lower, it talks about the, the light of the Lamb, how, it, uh, how the city will not need the sun or the moon. His commentary on the gates, uh, skip down to verse 25, the gates to the eternal city will not need to be shut because everything that could threaten the city has been defeated, verse 27, and consigned to the lake of fire. Verse 27's commentary, Never again can the devil, the one behind every abomination and lie, emerge to instigate sin. His eternal destiny in the lake of fire is certain. Only believers whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are allowed by God to enter Jerusalem. And um, what he seems to indicate is this idea that <clears throat> the wall would have a memorial value. It will have a symbolic teaching value. It will be uh, there not necessarily to defend the city because the enemies of God have already been vanquished, but there in its physical appearance to provide instruction and, and as a memorial um, to the apostles and to those who built the church. So what we have are different levels of interpretation as we do with everything else in the book. There is the metaphorical interpretation, the one often ascribed to those of the amillennial camp, meaning that uh, this passage is instructive on the building of the gospel. It, it symbolizes the way that the gospel story of grace came into being, being founded through the people of Israel, perfected in Christ, and then spread by the apostles, especially since the, the foundation of the church, so to speak, in this instance, the New Jerusalem, is literally uh, the, the apostles. Hmm. Going on, uh, those that are more along the pre-millennial pre line that believe more literally in this being an actual city think that it is of a memorial value, that the, the, the building materials, that this will physically take place, but that the building materials chosen, the way that they are laid out and the shape, even the, uh, even the dimensions of the place, hold a symbolic value, a, a, a value that we will register, that we will um, come to understand when we're actually there. So it's a symbolic reminder of God's redemptive plan through the generations prior to the renewed perfection, which will be the new Jerusalem. And then there's what I call the confused outlook. And I call it that because it is completely confused. In, in fact, those that are of this outlook claim as much, basically, that the timeline or the order of events, the sequential order of events in the book of Revelation uh, are seen as uncertain. So in their mind's eye, the reason that the gates are there and that the walls are still there is that sin may still be pervasive so that the New Jerusalem requires defenses. In fact, the Barnes commentary kind of alludes, uh, and I think the Matthew Henry as well, kind of alludes to this that the city is made secure rather than is already secure. I prefer, and this is just my own interpretation, again, that the sequence of events would not have been laid out by John 
had he not been experiencing them in this way so that he could jot them down. I tend to think of the New Jerusalem and its structure as being a memorial of what has passed, that God is made glorified through the work that has been done from, through the time of uh, the workers of the past, through the building of the people of God, through the work of Moses, later on the prophets, and then through the coming of the Messiah in the person of Christ, through the first coming in his earthly ministry, and then the apostles being the foundation on which the church sets. So, with that out of the way, we're on chapter 22, which is uh, the final instructions and encouragement from the voice of God. The first section describes the river of life and the tree of life. And this is some interesting descriptions, as you could probably tell. <clears throat> Starting with verse 1. He showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, from the Father and of the Son. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of that river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. How is a tree on both sides of the river? This imagery confuses me. All right, for one... In a lot of the more literal translations of the Bible to the Christian Standard Version, and the Christian Standard Version is pretty literal. It doesn't say the main street, it just says the street. As in, it just identifies one street in the New Jerusalem. Um, I can see how they made their inference there, though. But also that this tree is rooted on each side of the river. It kind of brings up the imagery like you see of the Redwood Forest where there's this a tree that's so large that they had to, in Teddy Roosevelt's time, chainsaw a car tunnel out of the thing. Almost as though this tree is forked at the base with its root systems on both sides, both banks of the river of life. Uh, anyway, moving on. The tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. Okay. So the river of life that flows from the thrones of God, shall we gather at the... That's not about baptism. If you sing that song, it is not about baptism. And we have a bad habit, particularly as Baptists, of singing that when we go to the baptismal font. But in truth, the beautiful river that flows from the throne of God is not the river Jordan where they were baptized. It is this new river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God as voiced in the book of Revelation. And this, uh, the water of life, this is something also that Jesus kind of alludes to, symbolically anyway, in his discourses in John 4 and John 7. Metaphorically speaking, he's talking about uh, water and the river are symbolic of being, uh, excuse me, provision for living. Uh, like, what is it? Um, I can't remember that. David, 
was talking about a tree that was planted on the banks of a river that never has to be concerned because it's always drawing up sustenance from the river. So it's always uh, it's symbolic of provision for living, but because we're talking about the water of life too, we're talking about everlasting life, that a water will spring into that person leading to everlasting life. But uh, the water of life is also symbolic of the Holy Spirit and His presence within us. How does, this, how does one obtain this living water? Through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Notice that it's also originating from the thrones of both the Father and the Son. Now again, the tree of life is beside the street. I, I will say that Main Street is probably not a bad guess when trying to identify that. But both sides of the river? That's an interesting image. And I also want you to notice that it comes up with 12 different varieties of fruit. The number 12, just like the number 7, the number 12 is particularly important in the book of Revelation. 12 in the Bible represents fellowship with God. 12 apostles, one Christ. 12 tribes, one God. Twelve fruits for the nations. Twelve varieties produced by one tree. Not only that, but according to the scriptures we've just read, um, the fruit are ripe with each passing month, which raises the question, okay, does it produce apples in January, bananas in February, um, grapes in March? You know, how does that work? One variety per month or everything all at once? It doesn't really state. Uh, but the kind of symbolic idea here is that you never go without. That God's provision here is always available to you. Also, it's interesting to note that um, time in some shape or form is still present. We still experience a sequence of events, even though at this point... We won't be constrained by them the same way that Christ himself is not. At least that's kind of the inference. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. That's we sing about that. But months are a form of time. So this is kind of a hint that in some way, shape or form that we cannot possibly understand right now. We will still experience time. We won't be trapped but we will still be able to experience things in some way, shape, or form. Leaves are also symbolic. They're a sign of providence. In Psalm 1-3, David describes uh, the leaves that do not wither. Leaves represent God being attentive and supplying the needs of His people. And it says that these Leaves are for the healing of the nations. That word healing there can also mean curing. That through this new life, through this new regenerate life, through an eternal life that we, as we have been resurrected, um, that we have been cured of all things in the past. In fact, John in that passage goes on to say that the things of the curse are no more. Death, disease, famine, heartache, sorrows even, all of it has passed away. And the tree of life here is kind of emblematic of the fact that we are healed of all of it, including death. That all of that is gone. 
we are now, thanks to God, in a state of both spiritual and physical perfection. Also, the word for nations there is ethnos. And that can mean nations, but ordinarily that doesn't mean nations as in Great Britain versus the United States. It means the peoples of the world. Not necessarily governments, but peoples. The way that we use the word ethnic right now, that's where that comes from. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Notice it's plural, they. The people and God. There will be kind of a, a co-regency here apparently as you are... As Christ is the firstborn of the Father, you are also, if you are in Christ, you are an heir of the kingdom. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. I believe that this is God's message for us directly. That through the voice of God, as John is writing this down, this is God talking to us that the book of Revelation itself, the same God that endowed the prophets of the Old Testament with foreknowledge and foresight and truth, He's now giving us this message. And that He is certifying it by putting His own name on the line, His own holiness. So in verse 4 through 6, we shall know Christ. We're in the Christmas season right now, and we know the word Emmanuel means... God with us, Emmanuel, El, meaning Lord. But in this instance, we, we here where we are right now on this side of eternity, we know of Jesus in the spiritual relationship that we have with Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have never, us personally, seen Him face to face. Here we will see Him face to face. We will talk to Him person on person. We will hear His voice. This is not just the spiritual relationship anymore. This is a degree of intimacy. We will also bear a mark of possession. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And if anyone comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. All of them will be here. and They will be marked as His on their foreheads. Also that their days will not be, there will be no night, there will be no darkness, both the literal and the figurative. For the Shekinah glory of God will be our light and we will be reigning alongside Christ. And again, the vision is authenticated by God Himself, putting His own righteousness on the line, so to speak. Verse 7, Look, I am coming soon, or quickly in some of your translations. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, in, of the prophecy in this book. I, John, author's note, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who had shown them to me. So this is the second time this has happened. And guess what happens in response? He said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, 
and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. It's interesting that the angel categorizes himself as being on an almost level playing field with the prophets and with the apostles, that we're all co-laboring together. Us in the physical realm, the angels in the spiritual. So soon or quickly, uh, the word in the Greek there is taku, from which we get tachymeter or tachometer, however you pronounce that. Now, in some of my commentaries, it mentions that that word more literally means in rapid succession. That like a tachometer, when you, uh, when you take a read of, of somebody's laps, for instance, that they happen one right after the other. So when it starts, it starts and then it escalates and escalates and escalates. But that word can also mean to be taken by surprise or that someone is inflicting a surprise upon you or that they're coming without delay. I tend to waver back and forth based on the context of either in rapid succession or by surprise in this instance. There is a special blessing that is duplicated from chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, I uh, taught you that this is the only book of the Bible that makes a special effort to say, read me, I'm special. If you read and study this book, you are promised a special blessing from God. And here that's reiterated. But it's reiterated in a different way. Instead of blessed are those that hear and those that speak the words of this prophecy, it's blessed are those that keep the words of this prophecy, that hold it, that harbor it, and consider it in their hearts. How many churches do you know of that ignore this book? There is a special admonition in God's Word to basically whatever you do else in Scripture. Make sure you cover Revelation. Make sure you make an effort to teach the book of Revelation. John also reminded us uh, well, was reminded, warmly I might add, to focus all of his worship, all of his reverencing solely upon God. And again, this is the second time we've come across this. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of this prophecy, the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy stay filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree, excuse me, the tree of life, and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The ones, in other words, who have been cast out. So here's the thing. This book, and this, this is particularly interesting if you think about the time of the Middle Ages. This book is not to be kept secret. Do not seal this book. Do not keep this knowledge from those that desperately need it. And we're particularly instructed about that because as, as Jesus tells John, the time is at hand, the time is coming. Be prepared. It's also interesting to note that this is not a transforming factor 
in a sinner's life. The filthy will remain filthy. The unrighteous will remain unrighteous. Only those endowed with the Holy Spirit of God will truly be impacted by this book. It's the only hope that anybody has of understanding what's inside of it is if we have the Holy Spirit within us, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, continuing to sculpt us with the knowledge that this brings. And there's also this little hint that until the time of Revelation, the time that we're talking about right now, sin will in fact continue. And Second Peter, the Apostle Peter writes actually about this. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is His coming that He promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all these things continue as long as have been since the beginning of creation. In other words, as time goes on, especially towards the end, towards the moment when the fullness of the Gentiles are completed, and Christ does return, or, or rather the, the harpazo happens, there's going to be people who scoff at the very idea of the resurrection, basically saying, okay, God doesn't exist. Where is He? He would have been here by now. That kind of thing. Where is His coming? They desperately overlook this. By the Word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world... of of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Notice that he says the heavens and the earth. So even, even Peter, without consulting back with John, even Peter knows, all right, this is going to happen. This has been prepared. Everything is set up. The only thing that we're ba basically waiting on is for the church universal to finally have its last member. So again, I say, if anybody's on conviction, please answer the call of God now because you could be holding the rest of us back. So we get these final instructions. For the redeemed, your reward is certain. For the unrepentant, your condemnation is certain. We're admonished to wash our robes. The identification of sin as a stain. Again, in the Greco-Roman mindset, we think of balancing the scales. But that's not the way that God sees sin. He sees it as imperfection. He sees it as a stain, as a blot, as something which must be washed off, as a debt to be repaid. The word for outside, exo, means to be without or to be out of doors, that which has been cast out or removed. Also, when he says, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming soon, um, if you take Peter in with it, what he's basically saying is, don't get lazy. Don't get compliant. Just because Jesus doesn't come this very instant doesn't mean that we can slack off and not do the work of the kingdom. That we as a priesthood of all believers should just let things slide. Every day that you have, every day that you are alive, is an opportunity to get a new A on your report card, another opportunity to do better, to, to add another jewel in your sacrifice to Him. Every day is another opportunity for sanctification so that when the day comes and we present our lives as a living sacrifice to Him, 
they'll be filled with treasure and not with dross. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel or messenger to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the beginning of that line and the ending of that line, the bright and morning star. Both the spirit and the bride notice that. Who is the spirit? The Holy Spirit. That's not a trick question. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. We are the church. So both the church and the Holy Spirit of God are beckoning the lost. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Who hears the book of Revelation and actually understands it? We just talked about that. We do. The church. Those endowed by the Holy Spirit. The regenerate. Let anyone who hears, the student, the disciple say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, who longs and thirsts after righteousness, who doesn't have that everlasting life as part of them, let them come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who bears the words of this prophecy, the prophecy of this book. If anyone who adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. An invitation to the people of the present. So both the Holy Spirit and the church are beckoning the lost to redemption, as they should. That's something that should never end until the day when it's all completed. The studying believer, the disciple, who claim the blessing of this book are also to actively, as part of their own ministry, beckon the lost to redemption. The church is also admonished to not block or hamper in any way salvation from anyone. For anyone that thirsts, let them come. And we're also admonished to teach this book as is, not to add anything on top of it, not to detract anything from it, but to preach it as it stands. You have to wonder and actually have a sense of pity for those that read into it. For those who claim that they know what it means and apply it to their here and now without a full awareness of it those that say that the great Satan has to be Russia or the Catholic Church or something like that, when the truth... Do not add or do not take away from. Second Peter 3, 14-18 says something similar about all of God's Word, not just the book of Revelation. Dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight at peace. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all of his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. I kind of chuckle at that because this is Peter telling everybody that's reading his work that, yeah, Paul says a lot, but be careful. It, it, he's he's kind of complicated. The untaught... And this is, this is my interpretation in with it. The untaught, meaning the ignorant, 
and the unstable identified previously in Scripture as those that doubt will twist them to their own destruction and they will also do with the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawlessness. Excuse me, by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. Do your own homework. Read the Word of God for yourself. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity, to the day of eternity. Amen. So John continues and he closes out. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. And this version doesn't have it in there because it seems redundant, I know, but in the more literal translation, there's another word there that says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with everyone. Amen. So, do not hamper or block salvation to any. Admonition. Teach this book as it stands. Amen. Which literally means, so be it. And the Greek word, nai, nai, which means even so. What John is effectively saying through those two words, the combination of those two words, is even with all this destruction, even with all of these plagues, even with the, the meteor called Wormwood crashing into the ocean, turning everything dead, even with the wars, even with uh, the rise of the Antichrist, even with the great climactic battle of Armageddon, even with all the death, all the destruction, even so, come Lord Jesus. Even through all of this pain, even through all of this destruction, no matter the cost, the end will justify all the means. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And that concludes the book of Revelation. May God add His blessing to the reading and the studying of His Word. We'll pick up in January, um, given the, the discussions that we had as a church over what to do next and some of the programs that we had talked about, we're going to try to make next year a year in the Bible, a, a year where we as a community of faith read through the Bible. To that end, the Wednesday nights will be kind of retooled as a if you will, kind of an introduction to the Word of God in a, in a, in a very um, survey type of capacity, where I'll give you a lighter touch than what we did here. But folks, I gave you 34 sessions in one book of the Bible, covering multiple other books. You got through devotion what most students don't get in seminary. And I, and I hope that you've gained from that. I hope that you've been intrigued by it, and I hope you've developed kind of an awe and a wonder for God's Word and its construction through this, and also taken some hope at the lengths that God has gone through to give us His precious Word. But in the coming year, what we'll do, starting in January, 
is we'll give kind of a light touch of background information, of historical context, and of kind of uh, this thread of redemption from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. So it'll be several sessions, but unlike this year, it won't be all focused into one book. As you go through the Bible during a Bible in a year type of reading, we will go do some more background work to make sure that you're getting more out of the Word of God than you would in that kind of a reading otherwise. To that end, make sure that your Bible that you normally read out of is a reputable translation which also is easy to read. Buying a Bible in Swahili will not help you out unless you can effectively read Swahili. And the, many Bible translators have different agendas going into their um, the type of Bible that they end up producing. We've talked a little bit about that on Sunday nights. Uh, my personal favorite study Bible is the Holman Christian Standard because it's, it's a decent mix between plain English and literal interpretation. Uh, of course, there is the Standard King James, which everybody I think is familiar with. English Standard Version is also a good one. It's more literal. It's, it's, it, it's harder to read in its flow, if that makes any sense. Of course, there is the um, Pew Bible that we have here, the New International Version, which is a uh, very much a modern English and evangelical uh, written translation of the Bible. So I want you to take a look at a, a modern, trans well, a translation that's easier for you to read. If it is King James, stick with King James. If it's new, stick with that. Uh, but make sure that it is something that's easier for you to read and from a reputable academic source. I would prefer also that as you're, you're getting a study Bible that you have one with some helps in the back of it, including and especially a concordance. And I'll show you how to use that the first day that we're back. But concordance, maps are really good to have as well. That way that as we're talking about uh, Naptali and being up around the Sea of Galilee, that you can flip back and point and see where that actually all takes place. Bible dictionaries are also handy to have. Uh, they don't need to be the large complicated ones. The ones that are in the study helps, the minimized ones that are part of a regular study Bible, that would be fantastic. But if you get a study Bible, please try to find one that has all three components as part of its help. If not, um, you don't need a giant concordance, but a good basic one will help you out in the study of God's Word. Also, take a look at the Bible in a year reading plans. There are some out there. The one that I went through this past year is, is the chronological uh, Bible in a year. The one that starts out in Genesis 1-1 at the very beginning of creation and then chronologically, almost like a storybook, puts the Bible together so that when you're in the books of the kings and the prophets, when, the, when both books kind of overlap, you'll read about this particular king and then you'll read about this particular prophet who was in service to God during that king's reign and so forth like that. That's one that I enjoyed this year. There are those that basically cut the Old Testament and the New Testament as it is. For those of you that don't like flipping back and forth into the daily chunks of about 20-minute readings apiece, uh, those kind of maintain a flow book by book. But research a Bible in a year type of reading plan for yourself. See what would be comfortable for you. And please, if you started out have the grace to forgive yourself 
If there is a couple of days that you need to slack off from it, forgive yourself and then come back, but press on. Lastly, have a journal ready. One of the important aspects of this kind of Bible reading is that when you go through the Bible in a year and something catches you by surprise, or you catch a memory verse that you want to have at your beck and call, or if there's something that challenges you, that stretches you as a Christian. Okay, why did God say that? Why does God command this? Why is God acting this particular way in this passage of the Bible? You'll have it to write down so that the next time that you read and you do a more in-depth study, you can really dive in and answer those questions. But have a journal ready. Anything else for the good of the discussion before we conclude this evening? All right, if not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us, the instruction that it gives us, and the certain knowledge that through our Savior, when the day finally comes, we will see you face to face. We thank you for the free pardon of sin. We thank you for the hope of salvation. We thank you for your church that continues to teach us, to nurture us, and to build us into the people that you've created us to be, the people you redeemed us to be and called us into being. So as we dismiss this study, keep in our hearts that which will help us to grow your kingdom, that which will help us to be the servants that you want us to be, that you have called us to be. In the hopes that through your work in us, others may be written in the Lamb's book of life before it is everlastingly too late. Send us forth now with your blessing. And it is again in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.